This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. I want to look at the results of a poll in just a moment. And I want to look at attitudes that exist. If I say climate change or if I say global warming, immediately you're going to have an opinion on this. It's probably a very well-informed opinion. It might go back to things that, that you believe. It might go back to things that you've read. But if I say those words, climate change, global warming, what are you thinking of? And the concern level, you know, when you go to the doctor and something hurts, what's the doctor going to ask? Doctor's going to say, so on a scale of one to 10, what's your pain like? I don't know. Is there a number on my arm? Can you see it? I can't see under my arm. Is it a three? I don't know. A six? I'll give it a number, you know. (laughs) Brian Regan does a great comedy sketch where he talks about the pain that you're experiencing going to the doctor and recommends that you always say 10. Nothing happens until it's a 10. Oh, it's a two. Oh, okay. We'll be back later then. Uh, It's a 10. Oh, okay. Then we better do something. But if we're to deal with climate change in the same way, if we're to ask you, so what do you think? What do you, what do you expect here? Well, you know, scale one to 10, how are you feeling? If you ask someone who is older, they're going to have a much different answer from someone who is younger based on a poll that was just done. And there's some polling that goes on that you think, oh, okay, that doesn't really say too much to me. I like this one. So let me kind of look at this for a second, just a little bit closer. This is one that was to look at Ontarians' generational views on carbon tax, okay? Because we're thinking climate change, because, you know, we're thinking about reducing emissions, all of those sorts of things. So in order to do that, one of the ways to limit the amount of carbon in the air to make some alterations to climate change and global warming is with a carbon tax. So the new poll shows some very interesting information, and we are going to be able to get to this right now because we're joined by Michael Bernstein, who is the executive director of Clean Prosperity. Michael, thanks for being with us. Great to be here. Michael, let's let's break this down. You did this poll. We've already said that younger people and older people seem to have quite the divide. Let's dig into the numbers. What did you find in the numbers? Yeah, so what we found was young people whose future is most at stake here are, are the most willing to pay. When you ask them, are you willing to pay money to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, you find 9 out of 10 uh, people who are under 35 say yes. Yes, absolutely. Now, contrast that with folks who are older. If you look at the segment of 55 plus, for example, you find it's, it's closer to about half, just over half, who say they're willing to do it. Um, those older folks say they're willing to support young people to go out on strike, like the strikes we've been seeing around the world. Um, you know, about two, uh, three quarters of them say, sure, we'll support someone to do that in our family. But when it comes to putting up money, uh, unfortunately, they, uh, up to now at least, say they're not willing to do it. Wow. Now, when you, when you do polls, because this isn't the first time that you've polled somebody, how distinct are these two sides to you? Well, I think it's... Um, they're pretty distinct. I mean, uh, I think, unfortunately, um, people who are a little bit older are uh, 
thinking that this is a problem for future generations and less for them. Um, I think that's starting to shift, but I don't think that shift is happening quite fast enough. Um, but, uh, but, you know, on a more positive side, what I would say is if you ask people about the importance of climate change to their vote that's coming up soon, you see about three quarters of people saying, yeah, that's a very important issue to me as I think about voting. And in fact, we, we are finding that it's the number one or two issue for people. So there's a divide. Um, I think it's, it's driven by that idea of this may be a distant problem if you're a little bit older, but I think that's starting to change. Michael Bernstein joining us, Executive Director of Clean Prosperities. We look at a poll that shows 9 in 10 Ontarians under the age of 24 would be willing to pay in order to ensure future generations have kind of what we have, and that could be through a carbon tax. 45% of them would say they'd pay 500 bucks a year. So $500, that's a really nice few days away, depending on where you go. I'm not, I'm not saying you're, you're able yeah. to go away for a week these days, but that's, that's a nice little chunk of change. And then people who are over the age of 55, 6 in 10, say they wouldn't even pay $100 a year to that type of tax. Michael, what do you think the shift is coming from? Because you talk to a lot of people about this topic. Where do you think it's coming I think people are starting to actually visibly see the effects of climate change. So look at the floods that are happening now, it seems, every year. Think about the wildfires that we know are getting worse. And now we're even starting to see new health problems like Lyme disease, for example, is a new health problem we never dealt with in Canada. And now we're starting to see that become more and more common. So I think people can now see with their own eyes that this is becoming a real problem. They understand there are costs to this. Like doing doing nothing also costs us money. Uh, it costs us money when we have to fix our basement or when uh, when we can't get through highways because they're flooded. Um, so there are real costs. People are seeing them. I think that they're starting to see that. And, you know, another really important aspect of this is these climate strikes that are happening all around the world. Um, we're expecting hundreds of them coming up this Friday. I know there was one in London last Friday and will be another one in a few days from now. And that's another, people have to see with their eyes. That's another visible expression that, oh, it's not just me that's thinking maybe this is a problem. There are people concerned enough to go out there in the streets and raise their voice and say, we've got to do something uh, about this problem. What kind of impact do you think that has? Because I often wonder, based on the fact that we've got a number of different protests about a number of different things, and after a while, if somebody's doing the same thing, it kind of blends into the background. You think, oh, here we go, somebody's protesting something again. <laughs> Is that a viable way to, to get people's attention these days? I think it's an important start, and I think it has gotten people's attention. I mean, look, last Friday, we had people in almost every country around the world, certainly including Canada, 4 million people in the streets on Friday. The largest climate protest ever, uh, to my knowledge, might be the largest global protest ever coordinated in one day. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. People are starting to, uh, to notice that. And um, it, alone, certainly it's not enough. We have to see concrete action. And interestingly, in Canada, we have, uh, we have an election coming up in just a few weeks. And so people are going to have the chance to express their preferences at the ballot box um, but I think the protests are a good start, and I think they do help raise visibility of the issue. We are talking right now with Michael Bernstein, and we are discussing a poll that has come out that show young Ontarians would be more willing to pay, even some of them, 45% of people under the age of 24 who were 
polled said they would pay more than $500 a year in the way of a carbon tax or something to help out in the fight against climate change, whereas people who are 55 or older, far less inclined to want to do that. Michael, as a final thing, and again, based on the fact that you talk about this How optimistic are you that something can be done? Because we do have the scientists saying, hey, 2030 is a big drop-dead date. We're getting close to 2030. We're almost less than a decade away. That'll start happening around January. 2050 really isn't that far away. Are you optimistic that we can turn some corners here? Because the fight for the almighty buck, I don't see that going anywhere. And that has a big impact on this. Yeah, I I am cautiously optimistic about this. I mean, look, we have to act right away. The time is now because you're you're correct that we have about 10 years, but that's 10 years to turn our economy around and to reduce emissions by half. We can't start that in nine years and 11 months. We have to start now. And here, here's the good news. You know, there are policies, you referenced it earlier, the carbon tax that comes with a rebate that goes back to families that actually are affordable. So yes, people want to do something about climate change. And yes, they are rightly concerned about their budgets and they're concerned about paying more money. Budgets are tight. Uh, a policy like the carbon tax, because it sends all the money back to families and to businesses, mean that most people, eight in 10 Ontarians, as an example, are actually going to come out ahead. So we have policies where we can address the problem. We can start to reduce our emissions today uh, so that we can hit those targets. We can do it in a way that's affordable. And there are three parties out of the four major parties who actually support this. So in four weeks from now, when people go to the polls, now, they have a choice. If they want strong climate action, they've got to support um, parties who have these strong climate policies. The Greens, the NDP, the Liberals all have it. Unfortunately, the Conservatives, who have been strong on the environment in the past and could still be in the future, but unfortunately right now, uh, they don't have a real credible plan on climate change. They want to repeal the carbon tax, as an example. So that's the choice in front of us, and, uh, and, and my hope is we, ought, we will move forward with strong climate action. Michael, thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Interesting poll. I like the way that it breaks down because it was so distinct. Those under 24, those over 55, and the answers were so different. Those under 24 half said, yeah, you want me to pay 500 bucks a year? Hand me my checkbook. Now, it's easy in a poll. It's easy for someone who's under the age of 24 to say, yeah, I, w- I would spend that much. But it just shows the attitude. Whereas people over the age of 55 not wanting to spend even $100 a year. So you can think what you want to about carbon tax, but Michael does bring up what the leaders are doing. And today, the Liberals did come out with more of their environmental plan. Again, they didn't necessarily spell it out perfectly. Um, And we're seeing the Conservatives. What did we say from the beginning? What's the Conservative strategy? Because you have to look at it, you know, to go to sports if you're playing football, are you going to be a run-first team? Are you going to have a spread-passing attack? Are you going to be stout on defense against the run? Are you going to use more nickel packages? There's always a strategy. And in politics, it's the same thing. And so you have a strategy. What was the conservative strategy? Anti-Trudeau. 60% of people, according to the Global News poll that was just done, don't like how he's governing. hey. If we can get most of them to vote for us, then away you go. Let's be the anti-Trudeau. And that's kind of what they've done. We have something for you to check out at 980cfpl.ca. 
Last week, we were lucky enough to be joined by Megan Collier. She started a series looking at young people going into the future, looking at young people who are having to decide in their high school years, what do you want to be? And those young people kind of struggling with that choice. And it can be a very expensive choice because you can make a choice and then you go off to university and you drop about 25 grand the first year. And then you think, yeah, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be at all. Well, there are other parts of Megan Cauley's series. And part two of Failure to Launch Kids is out. And we're lucky to have with us right now Global's Megan Cauley. Megan, how are things? How's it going? Not bad at all. I'm I'm waiting to get into some Donald Trump stuff, but I'm happy to have a break before <laughs> that happens. This this is still a very important issue, though, and it's it's the second of a four part series, and you're looking at people transitioning from high school to I love it the the quote unquote real world because it really is. Now, one of the things you mentioned you were going to look at last week was school counselors. Can you take us through some of your findings? Yeah, so uh, basically what I found in speaking to experts, counselors, and students from across the country is that counselors are an integral part of the career planning and post-secondary pathway planning development that happens in high school, um, but they aren't, there aren't enough counselors, generally speaking, across the board. And for the counselors that are hired and working right now, they don't have the resources they need to be operating in an efficient way. Okay, and that right there sounds like an issue. So what do you find kids are running into, given that the numbers aren't maybe what they could be? Yeah, so students really just don't have anybody to turn to at school in a formal way uh, who's in a capacity to help them with career planning or career development. So, you know, speaking specifically to Ontario, um, here we have a online portal, uh, and that is how you apply to all of our post-secondary institutions through this one online portal. That online portal is super confusing, and it can be a really um, demanding process to uh, compile all the forms you need and things like this. So even just this example of something that's very um baseline, you know, just the process of applying, that is complicated for students. And when counselors don't have time to walk them through that or to offer, you know, uh, workshops on how to use these tools, um, it's the students that suffer. We're talking with Megan Colley from Global News about her series, Failure to Launch Kids. So if kids are able to sit in front of counselors, do they feel like they get information that is useful to them? Yeah, there's an overwhelming amount of research which shows that early intervention by a school counselor uh, directly uh, contributes to overall success and enrollment in post-secondary. So there was one study in 2011 which found that high school students who have at least one interaction with their school counselor are significantly more likely to apply to post-secondary than those who didn't have any contact. And another study in 2014 determined that adding one more counselor to a given high school can increase student enrollment in four-year post-secondary programs by 10%. So, yeah, that, that touch point, even one time with a counselor, makes a huge difference. Man. So what do you think the options are then? Because it's, it's so easy to say, well, don't worry, the money tree's in the backyard, so we'll just go and we'll collect up some money off the ground and we'll get more counselors. What do you think we can do? Yeah, the... what. It, it, 
what seems to me to be the the ongoing conversation within this community right now is funding, as you say, um, but really who's responsible for that funding. So using Ontario, again, as an example, um, when I spoke to them, they said that they basically provide lump sums to each school board, and then each school board can do with that money what they see fit, depending on where the need is. Um, so what I found in, in sort of doing this research is that the blame is sort of being tossed around and nobody's really taking responsibility for who's go- actually going to make sure that there are enough counselors in schools that need more support in this area. You know, counselors are often considered uh, the frontline supports for mental health issues, which are increasingly common in post-secondary schools, um, substance abuse issues, trauma issues. So when they're preoccupied with those things, it's often the case that schools that have the higher instances of those issues actually need more counselors so that they can um, tackle these issues together and that and so that career development is still a priority and is still something that's happening. To get our heads around things again, how many students would a counselor be dealing with? Yeah, so this varies widely across the country, and the stats really aren't there right now. The data we just don't have, um, which is an, a big issue that a lot of experts have have acknowledged as an issue. Um, but, you know, I spoke to one counselor out in Newfoundland, and she was one counselor to three schools and 500 students across those schools. She also had to account for traveling between schools each day. You know, Newfoundland is quite large, um, and populations are sort of dispersed. Here in Ontario, we do have some hard numbers, though, um, recent survey found that among Ontario secondary schools with school counselors, some don't have any at all, the average student-to-counselor ratio is 396 kids to one counselor. And in 10% of schools, the average is 826 students to one counselor. Okay, let's run through those again. How many to one? So the average in Ontario secondary schools is 396 students to one counselor. And then in 10% of schools, the average jumps way up to 826 kids to one counselor. Man, you know, if you're trying to think of how long it would take you in a day if you were meeting with somebody, because these meetings are not going to be three minutes long. Oh, hi, how are you, Jake? It's nice to see you. Everything going well in school? Well, I think I'm looking at doing this. Okay, well, here, then do this and this and this. See you later. That would still take more than a week to get through everybody on your list. These these meetings would go on 20, 30 minutes. They could go on an hour. That's amazing. Exactly, yeah. And often these uh, counselors don't even have the time to do those meetings that you're talking about because they're being bombarded once they get into school each morning with uh, things they need, situations they need to react to. So, you know, you have student A in first period who is having issue with um depression and they need a referral out to a third-party counselor and that will take up three hours of your morning kind of thing. So really, they can't even move beyond these baseline, you know, providing supports to get to the career development. And to give you an idea, the American School Counselor Association recommends a ratio of no higher than 250 students to one counselor um, to make sure that those needs are being met. And right now, we're not even close to that. No. No. Well, it's a fascinating read. I tweeted out a link to the entire series if you want, so you can find that at Stubbs980. What do you have coming up next week? Next week, we're looking at how to choose between college and university, uh, be those being the two most common post-secondary pathways. Uh, we're going to have a look at some of the barriers to access, so things like cost 
things like um, mental illness, things like stigma around choosing college over university. And we're hoping to really further that conversation and promote, you know, the path, the path that's best for you as a student, as opposed to the path that might be considered best by your teacher or your parent. Megan, you always do tremendous work. This is exceptional, and you're really exposing a lot of things that I don't think any of us knew, and you're bringing them to light. So please keep doing that. Thank you so much. That's really kind. Have a great day. Take care. That is Megan Colley from Global News. Wow. You know, and I think a lot of people like to to put some blame on counselors. I really do. I think there's a lot of blame that goes around to counselors that, oh, well, they just seem distracted or, oh, they didn't have much time for me or they didn't really tell me anything I didn't know before. You can get those reactions. But if you do break down what their day is like, their day is more than just their job. And yet this is something, you know, it goes back to the mother bear theory. What is the job of the mother bear? It is to make sure that the little baby bear can go out and survive on their own. That's what it is. End of story. And yet we've got a big component in our high school system right now where it's we got to be able to get them ready to be on their own because tick, 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 end of grade 12, that's where they are. And yet we don't have the resources to make that happen. We're still doing the same damn stuff. Makes me wonder all of a sudden if maybe, you know, people don't like larger class sizes, but if larger class sizes could mean more counselors to help, would that be an option? I'm spitballing because there is no there is no good answer because there is no money tree. And if there was money tree, you know what it would be for? It would be for the schools that have leaky roofs. It would be for the things that, that we can't seem to fix. It would be for educational assistants who right now, they're looking at work and, and job action and work to rule even because of the cuts that have taken place. So, oof. We've highlighted this before. We'll highlight again. We're in a messy place right now. A lot of it comes back to the province doesn't have any money. So thanks to the mismanagement of past governments, I don't know who to blame with that. You know, spending more. We've been living in the great old times. We really have. And now, the old chickens are coming home to roost. For a long time... Halloween was UNICEF. UNICEF was Halloween. You had to get your box. You tried to load that thing up. You wore it proudly. You brought it into school the next day. You went, wow, how did you get that many coins? Wow, how long were you out? It was a big part of Halloween. And then it kind of faded away. And UNICEF, in fact, stopped giving out the boxes. But now they're trying to revamp things. And I'm interested to know how they plan to do that. So please welcome to London Live, Rowena Pinto, who is the Chief Program Officer with UNICEF. Rowena, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Nice to be here. Let's talk about UNICEF is as we go back in time a little bit because all of us can remember putting on the Halloween costumes you got your UNICEF box at school and you would carry that with you and people would identify it at the door they'd put in some change there'd often be a bowl of change right at the door and you'd make sure and fill up the box and little by little 
life changed on us. Can you explain kind of where we went from being able to collect coins to UNICEF not doing that anymore? What happened? Sure. So, um, as you mentioned, if you grew up in Canada, you are hard-pressed not to have been part of the UNICEF Halloween program. The iconic orange box was something that was just part and parcel of trick-or-treating and Halloween in Canada, to the point that we October 31st is actually was named National UNICEF Day by uh, the Canadian government in 2000. So this was such a part of, of uh, Canadian childhood. Um, and as you mentioned, I mean, the, mo- the more coins that you could collect, um, the better. Um, Do you remember the people who would come to school and they would have these boxes that were almost bursting? I, I can remember some that actually broke and they'd come with like a bag of coins with them. And those, those were pretty sturdy boxes. That, that was hard to do. That was exactly right, and I was always in a competition with my sisters to see who could bring in more money. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, I was the eldest, so I was never the cutest, but um, did try really hard every year. Uh, but you're absolutely right. But things, things changed, and what we started to see, I mean, at the peak of the program, we had about one million children um, raising money for us every year. And over the course of the whole entire time that we did this, which you know, it started in the 50s, um, we raised $100 million um, for, for children around the world. That's amazing. $100 million. $100 million from pennies and quarters and nickels. Um, so it, it was, you know, it was huge, and it was a hard decision to, to end the program. But a few things had changed. Number one, a lot of people didn't carry around change anymore. So collecting money at the door has just become a less and less of a thing, as you can imagine. People are not used to giving at the door. A lot of people don't carry money at the door. Um, and there almost was a distrust at giving at the door. Um, children didn't want to carry money anymore. And the, and, and the school system was having trouble on the whole collection and distribution. We had issues <clears throat> from a UNICEF uh, perspective of even all the administration that went behind collecting and counting. And uh, we saw less and less participation as time went on, um, just because, you know, overall the environment around this had changed quite a bit. Um, But what we didn't realize or didn't put enough emphasis on is that when the program ended in 2006, we took away a very important part of, of, of Canadian childhood, and we lost our secret ingredient, which was Canadian kids raising money for kids around the world. So we're incredibly pleased that we've taken we are we've taken the the warm and fuzzy part of the Halloween iconic uh, orange box. The characters are now jumping off the box. They're donning capes and 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 masks and they're becoming Halloween heroes and this we've turned this program now into a fully digital program which um speaks much more to the kids of today. It doesn't require them carrying coins. Um, and it gives them an opportunity to learn more about what UNICEF does, about kids around the world, and raise money for a good cause. Okay. We're talking with Rowena Pinto, Chief Program Officer for UNICEF Canada, and we're talking about how UNICEF is becoming a part of Halloween again. So you mentioned, Rowena, it is a totally digital program. Lay it out for us. How does this work? Sure. So it is called the UNICEF Halloween Heroes Program. And um, if any of you carried a box, you'll remember there were four characters at the front of your box. Well, they each represent a really important aspect of what we do for children. One is water, one is nutrition, one is education, and one is health. And so what we are asking children to do is to join us on our Heroes Quest to help children around the world and 
raise money throughout the month of October by be, by choosing to become one of these heroes. Um, and therefore, all of the money that they raise will go into one of these areas. Um, so this enables a child, first of all, to learn about the area, whether they choose to be a water hero or a nutrition hero. Um, but it also allows us and everyone who participates to raise money throughout the month of October versus just on one day. Our original program, as you, could, as you remember, raised money during the actual Halloween night, but now there's a much bigger Halloween season that we can we can work uh, towards. Um, so this will help us raise more global citizens, get children feeling more empowered, and as well do really great things for children around the world. So if someone is looking to donate and looking to help out the kids that are trying to raise money, how does that process work? Sure. So all you have to do is go to www.unicef.ca Halloween Heroes and you can sign up there to become a Halloween hero. It'll lead you through the process, very easy to use, but you can also press donate and you can pick one of the Halloween heroes, whether you know someone who's raising money um, or not, and, and, and as well you can donate. Um, that way too. We also have a special program for the schools um, in Canada as well. Um, schools played an enormous role in all of this, as as you remember back in the day, and we want to definitely um, re-engage them. We still have about 80 schools that raised money for us. Uh, we'd love to see that number increase. Um, so we've taken this program, adapted it for schools, and as well as an incentive, um, we are offering a free concert from the girl group G-Force, who was recently on America's Got Talent, um, and they've offered uh, a free concert um, after we uh, all the schools can enter, and after a draw, um, they'll perform for free. Excellent. Okay. Now, in terms of, of how the actual donations work, are, are children going to be asking at the door or are they going to be carrying anything that will symbolize UNICEF or the Halloween Heroes program on that night or is this more of just a, a year-round thing? No, this will be for the month of October, and all of their requests for, for donations will happen digitally, whether that be email. They, they can speak to their friends and family, but they can give them their, their page, and they can go and make donations there. Um, and then when they reach their fundraising goal, they unlock what we call our Heroes uh, Crest. Um, so this is something they can print out at home and wear around their neck. Um, and we'll also be giving them a card with their fundraising page. So if you if they do go out on, uh, on Halloween night and someone says, oh, I would have loved if I had known you were doing this, I would have loved to have given you some money, they can hand over a card and that person can go back inside and make a donation online. Um, we're also having the Hero Crest for those families who are fundraising as a family, and they can also hang it proudly on their door. So what we're hoping is to see many children carrying this crest um, as, as, you know, um, uh, as a reminder of, of, of the Halloween boxes. But the primary way that people will be raising money is online. Rowena Pinto joining us, Chief Program Officer for UNICEF Canada. Rowena, before we let you go, can we get a little bit of that education as to how UNICEF is helping out in those four areas that you touched on? Oh, absolutely. So um, in terms of water hero, I mean, that seems to be um, really clear. We need water to live. Um, what many people might not understand, though, is that not only do a lot of children not have clean water, but for us, water is beyond just drinking. Um, in many places, um, there's no sanitation facilities, and then that actually has a huge impact on uh, the ability for a child to remain healthy, or for even for certain children to even go to school. So 
you can imagine girls who don't have um, bathrooms that are gender um, specific often drop out of school. So water ends up being a huge doorway to their to their uh, future um, in more ways than we might originally think. Nutrition. Obviously, very, very obvious uh, link there too, but in many cases, um, children are incredibly malnourished. And we have a, n- a number of, of different tools that we use, one being uh, something called Plumpy Nut, which is an incredibly dense nutritional uh, supplement that we can give children who are malnourished, and we actually see them improve very quickly after um, a regular um, administration of that type of, 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 um, of uh, tool. And um, so the money that is raised there can help us provide more of those kinds of supplements to, to children around the world. Health, I mean, a big, one of the big things that we do here is we um, actually vaccinate about 45% of the world's children, and that's against things that don't even exist here in Canada, um, like cholera um, and tuberculosis and all of those kinds of things. And we're seeing a lot of children are dying of preventable diseases because they don't actually have um, access, especially in places where there is conflict going on. Everything stops. So UNICEF actually goes into those conflict zones to ensure that children are not dying of those preventable diseases. So that's something, if you become a uh, healthier hero, that's what you would be helping. And then education hero, every child's really, their future is based on the education they get. Um, We're seeing many more kids that are living, spending their whole childhoods in refugee camps, for example, or on the move. Um, And, or... Their, ha- their schools are being blown up um, during conflict. And so what do we do in those cases? And how do we ensure that huge generations don't lose access to education? So UNICEF is able to go in there and make makeshift schools, and sometimes they're intense, and sometimes they're done through radio if it's unsafe to actually um, go to the schools themselves. So we're trying as much as possible to really ensure that we're not losing generations of children um, because they don't have access to school. And that's what, if you become an education hero, that's what you would be supporting. That's great. Well, it is a tremendous program. It's amazing to see it return. One more time for the website for people to visit. Sure. Please go to www.unicef.ca slash Halloween Heroes. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rowena, for all the time. Thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate it. Rowena Pinto, Chief Program Officer with UNICEF. So it is back and it is aiming to do more good things around the world. It's tough to say that, you know, you could generate the same kind of buzz, same kind of interest. I don't think they're expecting to do that, but they don't want kids to go without the program itself. And so I commend them for bringing it back, and I hope it works. A lot of times parents and, and you know, friends and family are asked to give to the same things. UNICEF worked brilliantly. That $100 million, That worked brilliantly because you could go to a stranger's house and ask for money and they would give it to you. That's how you came up with totals like that. And that's not something that happens anymore. And I don't think that's going to change. But if you're looking to better the future, that's good. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.